My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to continue in our series in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And it's great to be back with you. So this morning, we're going to talk about a text that most of us are very, very familiar with. We know an eye for an eye. And I think if most people around the world, if you were asked to ask them something from the Bible, this would be one thing that most people can quote. But it's very, very much misunderstood. And hopefully we're going to make sense of that this morning. And let's be a little honest here. Like I wish Jesus was as clear as he is with the parable of the sower, for instance, where he explains line by line what it means with some of his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Because if taken at surface value, it seems like he's just giving us some commands for life and that there's no spiritual implication to these. But if you remember, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, you know what the one problem that the Pharisees, the crowds and the disciples had in common. They were asking natural questions. Jesus was giving spiritual answers and they only saw the natural They were only thinking in terms of things that they could see, hear, smell, and touch. They completely missed the the, the element of the the spiritual behind Jesus' teaching. And that's why in every week, we're going to be addressing not just the letter, but more importantly, the spirit of the law. Because in Jesus' teaching, it is all about the spirit. When I titled this Attitude in Action, um, I want you to think about it. When you read this passage about an eye for an eye, about giving your, your, your cloak over, is it only about the action or is it about our attitude toward that action? I mean, is it only about our conduct or is it about the character that drives our conduct? Because let's be honest, if most of us have heard this preached, we've, we've heard it either taught as some moralistic level of you just need to turn your other cheek and that's the, that, that's the end of it. Because... Let's, let's be honest, this has been the, uh, the uh, basis for this very technical term, uh, Christian doormatism, very closely related to Christian punching bagism, where we just uh, assume that if someone does something to me, I just need to keep taking it and keep taking it, and let sin go unpunished or sin go unaddressed. That's what most of us grew up thinking. Why well, is always have to turn the other cheek, and I'm just supposed to be beat up my entire life? That's not really what the Bible teaches. We're going to get into that in, in a minute. But for us, it's about what is the attitude that directs that action. And sometimes that attitude leads to inaction or abstaining from something that would be a natural response for us. If someone slaps us on the cheek, the natural response is a lash back. But why don't we do that? Not just because it's a moral imperative, because there's something spiritual that Jesus is getting at underneath this. Because for us, is it about defending ourselves, self-defense to our own pride, our own egos, or is it about self-denial, where we're not driven by our pride and our egos? I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. Listen to this quote. It's very, very insightful. He says, the important thing is not so much that I turn the other cheek, is that I should be in a state in which I am ready to do so. Listen to that again. The important thing is not so much that I turn the other cheek, is that I should be in a state in which I am ready to do so. Remember, the gospel is not about empty commands, but it's about the heart that drives our actions. This lesson this morning is really a teaching about how we view ourselves. And hopefully you can see that through this message. And any time we're in the Sermon on the Mount, make sure that we're seeing it 
in light of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes which started the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and seek after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those are the people who have been transformed by grace. And those lenses are what we use to read and see the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's keep those things in mind as we get into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, another great expression this morning. We can come together, we can sing in the same mouthful that it is by grace that we have been saved. Yet, in the midst of the storms, it can still be well with our soul. Because we are spiritual people led by a God who is spirit to see things spiritually, not as the world sees them, not to get to be driven by our flesh, to be driven by our pride, but to be driven by our love for you and the love for what you've done in our hearts. Lord, I just pray that I would not get in the way this morning. Forgive me because I am a sinner and I am not worthy to declare this message this morning because I have fallen in this way. But Lord, you've changed me by your grace. You've called me by your name and it's only by your love and your mercy that I stand before you this morning. And I pray that everyone in this room who is in Christ has come here this morning with that same realization that we are here only by your mercy and your grace. And thank you that vengeance is yours and not ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you'd open your Bibles this morning, uh, we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 38. I'm going to read through verse 42. Matthew 5, 38 to 42. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go with, with them one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is God's word. Remember what we said several times in the past. Whenever Jesus is addressing the law, he always says, you heard it said. Then he responds with what? But I say to you, Jesus is speaking as the one who is the lawgiver. So when the law was given initially, it was given to God's people in God's context. And it was tweaked and used for the religious leaders purposes. So Jesus has to reform the law, bring it back to its initial meaning. Say, but I say to you. So this is Jesus addressing the law. The other thing we need to recognize, too. You see, every one of these verses is addressing what happens to us. We will be slapped. We will be sued. We'll be asked to do things we don't want to do. We'll be asked out of our comfort zones. We are reminded that oppression and injustice is not anything new. People in Jesus' day were dealing with the same frustrations and struggles that we're dealing with today. And so this passage is as vital to us in 2016 as it was 2,000 years ago. So, first verse, what do we see here? We all know this. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is called the lex talionis. It's a Latin word that basically uh, has been synonymous with retribution, 
But actually, this was a gift from God. I mean, this was, if you remember the purpose of the law initially, it was to separate the Israelites from the pagans. Let me give you a little glimpse into what pagan life looked like before the law was given. Let me give you a little glimpse into what Canaanite life looked like before the God's people entered the promised land. People say, well, why did God ask them to slaughter the Canaanites? Why, why did that happen? Why is God wiping out whole people groups? And why is this eye for an eye a good thing? Well, there's a connection. You want to know what, what wickedness looks like? Is you kill one of my animals and I kill you. You steal my food and I cut off your arm. You harm my son and I kill your family. That's what was going on in the pagan world. You know what happens after that? Because if you kill someone from my household and I kill two people from your household, what happens after that? You kill four from mine. I kill all of yours. And now pretty soon, our families, our clans, and our villages are going to war. Many wars, our first world war, was basically started over something so trivial. And we've seen it throughout time. So this is actually God putting a limit on retribution. The penalty should fit the crime. If you steal fruit, you repay the fruit. If you harm someone, you will be harmed back. And so we tend to think, and wrongfully so, that everyone is just good in heart. And if someone you know, does something wrong, they'll just overlook it. But throughout history, if you dishonored my family, it was my duty as the head of household to make sure that your family would never forget it. And so God, very early on, is putting this limit on retribution. It's rooted in our very nature. I mean, we see it very early on in children. No names will go mentioned, but I've heard stories from mothers and grandmothers that young children who are just able to walk can't even talk yet. If you take their uh, candy, they will ball up their fist and they will look at whoever took the candy and they will march right toward them to get vengeance. They don't know enough to string a sentence together, but they know enough to say that's mine. They know enough to say, if you touch my toy, I'm getting even. I mean, that is rooted in our very nature. And we know how retribution escalates. And if we don't address it in our children young, if we don't put a limit on it, it gets out of control. The punishment must fit the crime and not exceed it. But also something to remember here. We tend to think of ourselves as the executioners of justice. This was a legal principle. Um, Gandhi liked to quote that an eye for an eye leaves the entire world blind. Gandhi loved to read the Bible, but he didn't know Jesus and he didn't know how to exegete it either. Because this was a judicial standard. It wasn't for me to take this action for my family on my behalf. It was for me to bring it before the judges and the magistrates and for them to exact justice. It wasn't for everyone to take it into their own hand. It was a civil standard for a people who had a civil government that had God as its, as its head. And, it, and it's interesting, too, when we think about a civil government governed by moral laws, our founding fathers knew very well that if you didn't have a moral absolute and if you didn't have a moral God, you have no expectation for moral standards. Because if you're just expecting people to live up to morals on their own without any accountability, without any absolute morals, then you're going to turn into chaos. So for us to understand these principles, it's not just rooted in human depravity. It's rooted in people who are rooted in the character of God. And so for us to remember, before we go into the rest of this, this passage, 
is that we are under the law until we're under grace. And without grace, the best that we can hope for, the most fair standard we can hope for is an eye for an eye. That we just don't take it further than it was given to us. Thank the Lord that he's a God of grace, not a God of fairness. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So what does Jesus say here? Verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also. So what does this word mean? In Greek, it means do not oppose, do not stand against evil. Wait a second. Shouldn't we stand against evil? We should, but we should do it with the proper tools. I think as all of us forget sometimes that we can't argue people into the kingdom. We can't change someone's heart by resisting them. The only thing that can change someone's heart is the Holy Spirit. And what is the conduit of the Holy Spirit, but God's word. We're going to see that in just a moment. But I want you to get something here. As Jesus is saying, in the midst of the ultimate slight, in the midst of the ultimate insult, you were to turn the other cheek. So how do I know this is the ultimate insult? Read the passage carefully. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Most people are right or left-handed. Not a trick question. Right-handed, right? Some people are left-handed. I'm sorry for you. But if you're right-handed and you slap someone on the cheek, which, which cheek are you, are you slapping if they face you? The left. The left. So if you're slapping them with your right hand on their right cheek, what are you doing? You are backhanding them. We call that something else. This is a different kind of slap, not really a word we should use here on Sunday morning. But that is the ultimate insult if you slap someone backhanded, Right? And Jesus is saying the ultimate insult, you were to turn the other cheek. Now, like we said, is this just about the action? Are we just to turn our cheek or is it about the attitude that's behind that? And when he says, do not resist evil, it's kind of like fighting on the Internet, right? Let me, let me just put it in our modern terms. There are no shortage of people who we can correct online, right? There is no shortage of evil conversations going on. It's like every troll who lived under every bridge, who lived in every mama's basement, now has a voice on the internet and in the comment sections. And some of us think, I stopped doing that years ago, but I did for a while think that I could save someone or I could correct someone in the comment sections of an article. That is resisting evil with no gain. I mean, we're, we're just spinning our wheels. There's this other saying that I just always find funny. Never get into a fight with an ugly person. Why? Because they're not afraid to take a punch in the face. Um, <laughs> that is, is kind of what Jesus is saying here. If you're resisting an evil person, if you're resisting someone who is ugly inside, they'll take the hits. They have nothing to lose. But for us, we're going to spin our wheels. We're going to get frustrated we're going to get drawn into their games. But as we live in our world, don't forget that we live in a fallen world. We should know that. This should be obvious to us. We should also know that wickedness needs truth, not our vengeance. You know, we learn early as a child that glass is sharp. If I touch broken glass, it will cut me. We learn early as a child that fire is hot. If I put my hand in it, it will burn me. But even as adults, we forget that people are sinful. People are wicked. We still want to put our hands in the fire. 
We still want to touch glass. We still want to argue with the, the ugly people inside and out and assume that we're going to be able to fix something. But we do have a weapon. We do have a response. The only other time where this word for resist is used in the New Testament, it's used in Ephesians chapter 6. If you turn there with me. So, Jesus tells us not to resist the evil one, but Paul tells us to resist the evil one. So what is Paul doing here? Is Paul contradicting Jesus? I'm sure you know the answer to that, but we're going to see for ourselves. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. The only other time in all of Scripture that this word is, is used, and your ESV translates it stand against, but it's the same word. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. I want you to see the context of a passage we're probably pretty familiar with, the whole armor of God. But what context is that being spoken in? Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and put in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, back up a second. So back in Matthew, Jesus says, don't resist the evil one. Is he talking about just these outward actions? No. He's talking about actions that are governed by evil principalities. He's talking about spiritual warfare. So Paul's setting the stage here. Let's continue. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And it is also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the ministry of the gospel. Now, but let me tell you what Paul is saying here. We know the armor of God only has one offensive weapon. What is it? Sword. The sword. The only offensive weapon is the sword. And what is the sword? Kids, sword. Were you listening? You should have. What, so what is it? The word of God. Our only offensive weapon against the evil ones is God's word. We're not to resist them in kind. If they slap us, we're not to slap them back. We're to resist them with the most powerful weapon on earth. God's word. So when the spiritual forces come against us, and sometimes they come in the forms of other people who want to slap us and push us around, we're not to be meek and cower before them. Paul says, pray for me so that I can be bold in the midst of spiritual warfare. That I may be able to sling the sword against the fiery darts of the enemy. 
That's why we are rooted in God's word. That's why every Sunday morning we're going to go through verse by verse through scripture. We want you to know scripture, not just a verse here or there that you can put on a, a bracelet or a bumper sticker, but the whole counsel of God, because the devil has a lot of flaming arrows. Sometimes they're obvious. Sometimes they're just some slight that hurts our, our pride. And then we get wrapped up into an argument with someone we have no business having. We don't have temporal arguments with temporal people. We are spiritual people. We go to God's word and we apply it where it where it's necessary. We are to be more concerned about God receiving the glory than us receiving vindication for our pride. Just very, very difficult to do. John the Baptist, Jesus said there was no man greater who ever walked the earth. And he said about Christ, I must become lesser so that he can become greater. This passage is about our pride and our desire to exact justice for ourselves. Sometimes we think we are the Justice League. We think that we come together and to solve all the problems of the world. And if we solve the moral problems of the world in our little hall of justice, then everything will be okay. But we know we're fighting against spiritual powers that are beyond our control. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who's changing people. Just thinking about this Justice League for all you comic book nerds out there. I was thinking about this, just a complete side note. The most useful weapon we could have today, or, or superpower, would probably be Wonder Woman's lasso, especially in the political climate, right? We just get someone to tell the truth and we knew what they were saying. You know what's interesting? I never thought about this before until this week, that Wonder Woman's lasso is the only superpower or tool that addresses fallen nature. It's the only thing that addresses the nature of man. That there's something inherent that we understand if we, that if there's one power we could have over people, we'd want them to tell the truth. Kind of an indictment about us. Kind of uh, an indication of, of where we are in our fallen natures. But Jesus commands us to die to ourselves in those instances where our pride wants to be vindicated. Those who lie against us, we want to get even with them. We want to build our own little kingdom where everything works the way as it should, where we're our own uh, administers of justice. Or do we trust that our Savior will judge all? One day he will right every wrong. He will wipe every tear because he's the same one who said vengeance is mine. But he's also the same one who will make all things new. So it's so important to know who Christ is and who we are in Christ because we don't have to exact judgment for ourselves. We don't have to see justice done in every situation right now because it won't be. Let me lay you in on a little secret. The world we live in is not supposed to be fair. I don't know who told you that, but it's not. It's not supposed to make perfect sense. We live in the midst of a fallen world. The world is cursed all the way back to Genesis uh, 2 and 3. Let that sink in. It's cursed. And Satan has dominion over it right now. God's in control. But he is the prince of the power of the air. The air that, that, that we breathe, Satan is in control of. How can we expect complete justice? Sometimes we do. We think that we have to be the one to exact justice. Let me tell you a little bit about what justice would look like. Justice would look like when Adam and Eve said, forget you, God, we want to be gods. Justice would have been wipe them off the face of the earth and I'll start over. I made you. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. That would have been fair. That would have been justice. I think many of us are still trying to be our own gods. I mean, we know the people in the world are. 
It's the very sin from the very beginning that Satan told them you could be like God. People want to be like God. Well, you want to be God? Create your own planet. Create your own atmosphere. Create your own food. Create your own people. Make laws for them and watch them rebel and see what you would do. Us as gods, we would seek vengeance. We would wipe them out the moment that they stood against us. But our God, thank the Lord. Oh, my soul, that our God is merciful and he's not fair. His fairness, none of us would be here today. But he's merciful. So as we go on in this passage, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And we are to be radically unattached to our stuff. Let me tell you a little bit about tunic and cloak. I'm not going to get into the history and culture too much. But um, tunic was a lesser expensive garment. Your cloak, if you didn't have many possessions, you would have had a, a cloak that would have been over your undergarment. And it would have been more expensive. And if you needed to sleep along the way, it would act as your blanket and your pillow. So Jesus is saying, if someone asks you for the less expensive garment, give them the more expensive one too. Whoa. So... That's what Jesus wants us to do. Let's see what Jesus wants us to do. But let's talk about what it is not first. It is not letting sin go unpunished and sin go unchecked, especially in the church. Jesus is the one who taught in Matthew 18 that if someone sins against you, bring it to them. If they don't respond, bring it to the elders. If if they don't respond to the whole congregation, then turn them over to the devil, essentially. So sin is not to go unchecked. Remember, this is not Christian doormatism, Christian um, punching bagism. It's about letting our pride go. They're coming after you. So Jesus is saying, if your brother has something against you, this is why we do confession and repentance before communion. If your brother has something against you, resolve it. If it takes giving away your most expensive garment, do that. I mean, let's be honest here. If anyone needs a shirt, big deal. Give them a shirt. There's not a person in this room who couldn't uh, do without one article of clothing. Someone asks you for a shirt and you give them a pair of pants. It's great. We should have a, a heart that wants to give to the needs of others. But please don't miss this. Pay attention. Please, please, please. If you think this is just about giving your stuff away, you're missing the point. It's about where our treasure is. What is it that our heart desires? What are our attitudes toward our possessions? I mean, we all know how Jesus interacted with the rich young ruler. He had all the outward actions, didn't he? He kept all the law. But his inward attitude, his heart, Jesus knew this, was attached to his stuff. He walked away heavy hearted because he was a rich man and had many things. So as a man who had all the actions in the world, he kept the law perfectly, he says, since he was a child. But his heart was drawn to his things. Jesus is saying, have something far greater for you. Worry about your clothes, your, your, your things, your, your possessions. People ask for it, give it to them. Your father, I love you. Provide for the birds of the air. You don't think I'll give you more clothes? We should know that. But we should also know that our pride and our indifference is an opening for the gospel. Because many times we think about our own vindication and, and we, we want to get even with those who stand against us. We think about, we're worried about our own pride sometimes. We miss an opportunity for the gospel. I want to read you a quick story. I love this. By the way, if you want to read one book on the Sermon on the Mount, Martin Lloyd-Jones studies in the Sermon on the Mount, and every chapter is fantastic. 
But he tells it a story. And also, uh, I'm going to give you book recommendations for you know, every once in a while. If you're looking for a book to read, it's a little more approachable. Read Hudson Taylor's biography. Hudson Taylor, if you don't know, he's one of the first missionaries to China. Man, he went through a lot. But his faith was incredible. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells about this, this time where Hudson Taylor responded to exactly what we're talking about this morning. So he says, Hudson Taylor, standing on a riverbank in China one evening, hailed a boat to come take him across the river. Just as the boat was drawing near, a wealthy Chinese man came along who did not recognize Hudson Taylor as a foreigner because he had affected the native dress. So when the boat came, he struck and thrust Hudson Taylor aside with such force that the latter fell into the mud. Hudson Taylor, however, said nothing. But the boatman refused to take his fellow countrymen, saying, No, this foreigner called me, and this boat is his, and he must go first. The Chinese traveler was amazed and astounded when he realized that he had blundered. Hudson Taylor did not complain, but invited the man into the boat with him and began to tell him what it was in him that made him behave in such a manner. Because as a foreigner, he could have resented such treatment, but he did not do so because of the grace of God in him. A conversation followed which Hudson Taylor had every reason to believe made a deep impression upon that man and upon his soul. If he would have just exacted judgment in that moment, threw the man down in the mud, there had been some immediate satisfaction. But he wasn't concerned with his own pride. He knew that there was something deeper in that man that needed to be addressed. The grace that was in Hudson Taylor needed to be explained to this man who was only thinking about himself. So covered in mud, humiliated for a moment, put his pride down in order to point that man to Christ. Hudson Taylor, if you read about him, had many opportunities to do that. And it didn't grow right away, but many people attribute the great movement in China right now to his initial work. And so for us, we are to be so unconcerned with our pride and our possessions that we live so boldly that the world takes notice. Because we we love the quote that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are. We are also vessels of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses our lives, our character, our witness to move in the hearts of others. And if we're so concerned with what people do to us, what happens in courtrooms, what happens to our clothes and our our things, we lose sight of the kingdom. We're so blinded by ourselves sometimes that we can't see the eternal purposes. So Jesus is getting here, getting at here. Forget about this temporary stuff. It's temporary. It will come and it will go. We are to be people of truth and honor and justice, not for our own pride, but because we are ambassadors of the God of truth and justice. He goes on with his examples, and these become a little bit redundant. So I want you to get the sense of this here. Verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. This requires some cultural explanation. When you lived in the Roman Empire, you were under Roman rule. And a Roman soldier at any time could say, carry my armor, but they put a limit on it. If the Roman soldier asked you to do something, the furthest you could go would be a mile. You could be in the middle of your daily chores. You could be eating with your family. A Roman soldier would come to you and say, pick up my armor and carry it a mile. Jesus is saying, that Roman soldier asked you to do that, carry it too. You're like, come on, Jesus, we're already living under Roman rule. I already don't like these guys. I have to take their armor two miles. 
Now, that has some implications for us as citizens, for us as employees. We are to live in such a way that this is just crazy to the world around us. Like, who would do that? Someone, because Jesus doesn't say, ask you to carry, excuse me. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go a mile, you go an extra one. That person's going to ask, what is wrong with them? I, I got to know, who is this person? Why would they do that? And why would they do it joyfully? Because it's not about our actions. It's not whether I walk a mile with you or two miles with you. If I have to walk two miles with you to get a chance to share the gospel, and you might eventually come to know Christ because of my witness, I lost a mile in five minutes of my life, but I gained a brother for eternity. We're usually so caught up in ourselves. Man, I was doing something. I had something more important to do. I didn't want to walk an extra mile. A mile is bad enough. That's what Jesus is telling us here. And as citizens and as employees, I mean, we have to live within the structures of our nation. We should do all we can to influence it and redeem it for Christ. But however, we should never forget that this is temporary. Elections are temporary. Politicians are temporary, thank the Lord. Jobs are temporary. Pain is temporary. But our witness, the truth of the gospel, is eternal. That weapon, that sword, pierces bone and marrow. The witness that we have against others, when they only think about themselves and we care about them more than we care about ourselves... I mean, that is world changing. You slap me, big deal. You're on my shirt, big deal. I'm going to walk with you two miles, big deal. But you go to hell because you don't know Christ, that's a big deal. Verse 42. So Jesus has finished up here. It's like he just throws these two on at the end and just tacks them on there. <laughs> Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I mean, this is just more in the same. It's our attachment to our things. There are genuine needs. We need to help. We need to get involved. Jesus also, when he said his, his disciples out, he told them to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. Because there's a difference between a genuine need and every scam artist out there who wants Christians to be doormats. We've all heard, and if you haven't, you're blessed that if you were really a Christian, you would do this for me because I asked you to. If you were really a Christian, you would allow me to abuse you verbally, physically sometimes because you're just supposed to take it. You're a Christian. Sit there and take it. Paul was very, very bold against those who were wicked against him and, and others. Nothing in this passage, if you notice, is about what happens to others. There's nothing, if, nothing in here that says if someone slaps your wife on the right cheek, you should turn her other one. If you slap my wife, we have a problem. Slap me, I'll, I'll deal with it. This is not talking about not seeing justice done on behalf of others, seeking prideful vengeance for ourselves. We need to be aware of scam artists. We need to be people, aware of people who just want to get over we are to be wise with what he's given us. And that's why, when Paul tells us in Galatians, we are to take care of the household of faith first. We love our brothers and sisters. We love them well. Give them anything that they need. When people from the world approach us, we just need to be wise. Sometimes it's the right time to give. Sometimes it isn't. And there's, and there's grace in that. Because we don't know. You know, we make mistakes. 
So how do we conclude this morning? What do all of these verses have in common? I kind of alluded to that a minute ago, but it's all in how we view ourselves. How do we view how other people treat us? Those who slap us, those who ask things from us, those who sue us asking for our possessions. Are we prideful in our need for vindication? Are we so held on to our things and our pride that we can't love other people created in the image of God? Are our actions a result of our character, a result of the attitude that God put within us? Because if we are followers of Christ, we have been transformed by his grace. Our attitudes are to be different from the rest of the world. We are not to seek our own vengeance, our own retribution. We are to be indifferent to the things of this world, uninvolved in what the rest of the world argues and fights about. Did you notice in this passage, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but there is not one mention of God's laws being broken. It's not a mention of adultery. It's not a mention of thievery or any sins being done. So it's different when someone breaks God's laws. Again, when sin happens within the church, we are to address it, not just turn the other cheek to sin. These are all prideful situations. These are all things that we can get rid of our stuff and get rid of our pride without breaking God's laws. Not one of God's laws was broken in this passage. Nowhere does it discourage us, though, from seeking justice on the behalf of others. With this passage, there have been many errors. On one side, the error of extreme um, passivism. We just let everyone get over on you, and we have no boldness in our witness. But on the other side, we, we see extreme vindication that is, that is taken out in the world. And we don't need to be people governed by either one of those. Wise as serpents, gentle as doves. So what do we take away from this? Do not get involved in worldly conflicts or be enslaved to worldly things. But as citizens of heaven whose integrity in, exceeds this of this world, you understand that our home exceeds this world. Our reason for living is not the simple pursuit of happiness, but a state an attitude of joyfulness. Because we're a child of the king. We're members of his royal court. Ambassadors proclaiming his message. We should act like it. We're happy as Christians because we have plenty of reasons to be happy. Attitude and action is dying to ourselves. I'm going to close this with this verse. Uh, Galatians 2.20. And James, wherever you are, if you want a memory verse for this week. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses. If you want to commit one verse to memory that summarizes the Christian life, this is it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, forgive us. <laughs> When we seek vindication for our own pride, forgive us when we fall victim to our own desires to be our own gods, that we have made idols that we put above you, our things, our pride, our egos, Lord, that we would serve you, not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, but joyfully, so that when the world sees our character and our countenance before them, they just stand in amazement. Who are these people? Why do they look like that? Why do they talk like that? Because we are people transformed by your grace. 
We are people who are bought with a price, who are given the name of the Most High God and an eternal inheritance. Who cares about being slapped or giving away a shirt? Don't you know that we have rooms in our Father's mansion? We have treasures stored in heaven. That is who we are. But Lord, we all forget that. We all fall short. Please give us grace and reminders and help us to be reminders to one another of who we are in you and the joys that we enjoy in you and the joys we will enjoy for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.